Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is Adam Gustafson of Boyd and Gray and Associates, who's representing the Urban Air Initiative. And we're going to talk about some developments um, that Adam's been working closely on uh, related to ethanol. Adam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tammy. Let me read a little bit of background about you so the listeners um, who may not know you can get to know you a little bit. Adam is a partner at Boyd and Gray and Associates, where he has represented states, federal judges, environmental groups, biofuel producers, agricultural interests, and public policy organizations on such issues as the constitutional separation of powers, the First Amendment, automotive regulations, environmental computer models, healthcare regulation, and judicial deference to federal agencies. Adam received his JD in 2009 from Yale Law School, where he was an editor of the Yale Law Journal a managing editor of the Yale Journal of Law and the Humanities, and an executive editor of the symposium issue of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. So he has his JD from Yale Law School and a bachelor's uh, from the University of Virginia with high distinction. So again, Adam, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks, Tammy. So I'm going to go right into it. Um, You have been doing a lot of work on various issues um, related to um, ethanol recently, and I'm going to just go piece by piece. The first question I want to ask you about is about EPA's recent uh, regs rule and UAI, so that's short for, for the listeners for the Urban Air Initiative. I want to ask about um, Urban Air Initiative's comments um, back on that, and I want to ask um, about EPA's response to those those comments. Can you talk a little bit about um, about that, and maybe just in general for for the listeners, what the Urban Air Initiative's um, doing and what you're doing to to help them? The Urban Air Initiative exists to remove regulatory barriers to improving fuel quality for the purpose of uh, cleaning the air and improving human health. And Urban Air Initiative believes that the best way to do that is by reducing the harmful components of fuel by increasing the ethanol portion of of gasoline. And so I've been privileged to work with Urban Air Initiative on their uh, regulatory strategy uh, on a number of fronts. And so the regs rule comments that we recently filed is one piece of that strategy. And the regs rule uh, was intended by EPA, uh, according to the preamble to the proposed rule, to uh, advance ethanol use. It may be that the agency intended, but unfortunately, the proposal that EPA issued would actually substantially limit ethanol use in motor vehicle fuel. And it does that by a misinterpretation of something called the subsim law. This is a piece of the Clean Air Act, Section 211F Clean Air Act, that EPA has traditionally interpreted to limit the ethanol content of fuel. The subsim law simply says, and I I should quote from the statute because it's important, the subsim law says that it is unlawful to first introduce into commerce 
or to increase the concentration in use of any fuel or fuel additive for use by any person in motor vehicles, which is not substantially similar to any fuel or fuel additive utilized in the certification of new motor vehicles. So when an auto manufacturer produces a new vehicle, he has to demonstrate to EPA that it's going to comply with EPA's emissions standards. And to do that, he runs the vehicle on a dynamometer, measuring the outputs from the tailpipe and using a test fuel with specifically set parameters. EPA has interpreted the subsim law to mean that the fuel used in the market cannot have a higher ethanol concentration than the fuel used in certification testing without a waiver of the subsim law. The problem with EPA's interpretation is that that's not what the law says at all. The law only limits the use of fuels or fuel additives that are not substantially similar to fuels or fuel additives used in certification. And as of this year, 2017, the gasoline certification test fuel contains 10% ethanol. So after the tier three rule, which introduced this E10 gasoline certification fuel, ethanol is clearly fuel additive used in certification. And so we argue in our comments that because ethanol is a fuel additive used in certification, EPA cannot control the concentration of ethanol in market fuel through the subsim law. Instead, if EPA wants to control the ethanol concentration of gasoline, it has to do so through its ordinary authority to control gasoline components. And that's in a different provision of the Clean Air Act, Section 211C. And these two provisions of the law are different in an important way. Um, ordinarily, when EPA wants to, to impose a limit on a market fuel, it has to find one of two things, either that the fuel or fuel additive that it is controlling is bad for human health or that it impairs emissions control devices. That's very different from the subsim law. If a fuel manufacturer wants to sell a fuel that is not substantially similar to one used in certification testing, the manufacturer has to show EPA that the fuel will not result in any impairment of emissions control devices. So by relying on the subsim law, to do the work that should be done under uh, a different provision of law, EPA is basically shifting its burden to the fuel manufacturer who now has to get a waiver of the subsim law by showing that the fuel will not impair emissions control devices, essentially proving a negative. So we filed comments explaining that EPA's interpretation of this law is inconsistent with the plain meaning of the statute and improperly shifts EPA's legal burden to fuel manufacturers. Those comments were filed in February, I believe, and EPA has not yet uh, taken any action to finalize the rule, and uh, we don't know if EPA will do so. It's possible that since this rule was issued under the prior administration, that uh, the current EPA may decide not to finalize the rule as proposed and to withdraw it or to substantially revise it. So I know that you, um, Urban Air Initiative, met uh, with Administrator Pruitt this week. Did this issue come up? And, you know, was there any general 
did you get a general sense of the thinking there? I know it's it's he's still pretty new and um, <laughs> getting his bearings, and he's had a lot of other issues on on his plate to deal with. But but what was your sense to the extent that you can talk about it from that meeting? Well, we were honored to be able to meet with Administrator Pruitt about this and several other issues that I hope we can talk about today. And he was very uh, receptive of our arguments. He is a, a lawyer. He was the former attorney general of Oklahoma. So he approaches these issues from a, a lawyer's perspective, which I appreciate being a lawyer. And so it was interesting to see him take an interest in the statutory text, to want to read and understand the statute. And of course, he's approaching this and many issues for the first time. And so it's too early to say how EPA is going to respond to any of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But we were very pleased um, by his uh, interest in the issue and his commitment to following the law and to taking EPA in an active direction to fulfill its statutory mandate. So let's say that this rule is withdrawn or the UAI's comments are otherwise accepted, taken into account, result in a a favorable uh, policy change. What does that really mean, especially for those listeners who aren't so familiar with, you know, the, the legalities involved? Does that open the door for higher ethanol blends? Is is that the end result here? The short answer is yes. The long answer, I think, requires me to answer a slightly different question, which is what would happen if EPA finalized the law as proposed? And if EPA were to finalize the rule as proposed, it would insert into the Code of Federal Regulations a prohibition on, quote, the sale or introduction of gasoline containing greater than 15% ethanol in any 2001 or newer motor vehicle, with the exception of flex fuel vehicles. And so if this rule is finalized, then the regulations will, for the first time, very clearly prohibit the sale or use of higher levels of ethanol in non-flex fuel vehicles. And we think that would be very detrimental to not only the ethanol industry, but also to the automotive industry and to air quality, because these higher level blends of ethanol um, actually enable more efficient vehicles and they reduce air toxic pollution. So uh, we want to make sure that that rule is not inserted into the code. And we would like instead to see EPA allow experimentation in the states. Uh, with higher levels of ethanol usage in non-flex fuel vehicles. There are test programs ongoing uh, around the country that have seen favorable results with mid-level ethanol blends in conventional vehicles. And we think it would be premature for EPA to cut off those endeavors. So from a policy standpoint, which goes beyond the confines, you know, of um, the comments on the on the regs rules, what do you think it will really take from a policy standpoint to really break through this this blend wall and, and increase the market penetration for ethanol? And that includes all the legal issues that you've been working on that we're going to talk a little little bit more about, but also just 
uh, in general from your standpoint and from where you sit? From where I sit, the blend wall involves three main puzzle pieces. And one of them is the issue we just talked about, the subsim law that EPA is interpreting to limit the ethanol concentration of market fuel. The two other pieces of the puzzle involve uh, certification fuel and EPA's RVP control. I'll talk about what that is in a minute. So on the certification fuel issue, I already mentioned that this is fuel that vehicle manufacturers have to use when they're certifying to EPA that their vehicles meet emissions control, uh, meet emission standards. For many years, since at least 2011, the auto industry has been asking EPA for a higher octane fuel, and specifically a higher octane fuel with more ethanol in it. The auto industry needs higher octane fuel in order to increase engine compression ratios, which would help them with fuel economy. So the auto industry is increasingly challenged by the fuel economy and greenhouse gas standards that are increasing in stringency over time. And they need more tools in order to make vehicles that can comply with those increasingly stringent standards. And one of those tools is increased compression ratios and downsizing of engines. And this is enabled by a higher octane fuel like a mid-level ethanol blend. So one thing that we would like to see EPA do is to approve a new mid-level ethanol blend certification fuel, which would allow manufacturers to test next-generation vehicles, highly efficient vehicles, on uh, a higher ethanol fuel. So that's one piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is EPA's RVP regulation or read vapor pressure. Read vapor pressure is a measure of the evaporative tendency of a fuel. Uh, the Clean Air Act grants a reduction in stringency of the RVP standard for gasoline or any fuel containing gasoline and 10% ethanol. And EPA has interpreted this one pound waiver of the RVP standard to apply only to gasoline with exactly 10% ethanol, actually 9 to 10% ethanol. So EPA allows market fuel, which is predominantly E10 today, to meet uh, a less stringent reed vapor pressure standard than it otherwise would have to. But EPA denies the benefit of this one pound waiver to fuel blends with more than 10% ethanol. We think that's a misinterpretation of the statute. The statute doesn't say that the waiver applies to fuel blends containing no more than 10% ethanol. It just says 10% ethanol. And of course, a fuel with 15% ethanol is just E10 with the addition of more ethanol. So legally, EPA's interpretation doesn't make sense. It also doesn't make sense scientifically because reed vapor pressure does not follow a linear pattern with increasing ethanol. If you start with a gasoline, so-called pure gasoline with no ethanol in it and start incrementally adding ethanol 1% by 1%, the highest RVP of that fuel, the highest volatility 
of the fuel will be around E8 or E10, between 8 and 10% ethanol. After 10% ethanol, if you keep adding ethanol to that fuel, the volatility of the fuel will actually start to decrease. And by the time you get to about 35% ethanol, you're actually below the volatility of E0. EPA's interpretation of the one-pound waiver statute is nonsensical because it deprives blends of ethanol that are actually lower in RVP of this provision of the Clean Air Act. So E15, for example, which is a legal fuel under any interpretation of the subsim law, because EPA has granted a waiver of the subsim law for E15, E15 cannot be sold in general in the summer if it's made from the same gasoline blend stock as E10, because it does not get the benefit of the one pound waiver and therefore exceed the RVP standard. That doesn't make sense because the E15 actually is a lower volatility fuel than the E10, and it's a cleaner fuel with less evaporative emissions. So we think the best course would be for EPA to reinterpret the one pound waiver statute to apply to all fuels containing 10% ethanol, including fuels containing more than 10% ethanol. So I want to get to that CRC uh, study. So there was uh, CRCs, it's it's respecting um, the recent emission studies and the practice of match blending test fuels. So that now we're really getting into the technicalities here. And I want to read you a comment that UAI um, and most probably <laughs> yourself actually wrote. UAI said, the CRC study adds aromatics to the recipe as it adds ethanol, which does not match real-world fuels and falsely blames ethanol for increasing cancer-causing emissions. Urban Air believes this is just plain wrong. A more accurate way to mimic real-world fuels is to splash blend or simply add ethanol to the gasoline like you would add cream to your coffee. When this happens, emissions are reduced because ethanol replaces a portion of toxic aromatics, which is what actually happens at your corner station. Has there been a response from CRC on this, or what's happening there? Uh, I'm not aware of any response from CRC on this issue. I have to say that CRC is not alone in this problem. Many of the modeling problems that we have encountered from EPA stem from a similar problem of match blending, which is, in short, the practice of testing one fuel property against another by trying to adjust that single fuel property while holding other fuel properties constant. Some of these, the relevant fuel properties are distillation temperatures, temperatures at which various proportions of the fuel boil off, or RVP, or aromatics concentration, the concentration of aromatic hydrocarbons in the fuel. All of these properties, of course, are interact with one another. When you change one fuel parameter, you change all fuel parameters. So, for example, when you add ethanol to a fuel, you are reducing by dilution the proportion of aromatic hydrocarbons in the fuel. You are lowering the distillation temperatures in different ways, and you're changing the reed vapor pressure of the fuel as well. So EPA and CRC have tried to study fuel parameters by trying to artificially control these other parameters. The problem is that they've done that 
by adding to the higher ethanol blends fuel components that would not appear in the fuel uh, in the marketplace, or at least not in the proportions that they're being added by the fuel study testers. And so this CRC study is just the latest uh, in a line of such studies. The most important from my perspective being the EPACT study, so-called because uh, EPA conducted it in response to the Energy Policy Act of 2007. Uh, this study was important because it formed the, the basis for the emissions uh, factors in EPA's vehicular emissions model, known as MOVES 2014. And just like the CRC study, the, the test fuels in the EPACT study uh, were biased against ethanol because the higher ethanol concentration fuels included dirtier fuel components that were added in order to artificially match uh, these selective fuel parameters. And of course, the addition of those components adversely affected the emissions properties of the fuel. But instead of attributing those effects to the added components, the study attributed them to the ethanol content of the fuel. So you have an EPA model that says that adding uh, ethanol to fuel will increase a whole host of harmful emissions. That's just not true. We know this empirically because other studies have demonstrated that adding ethanol to fuel reduces these pollutants. We've been advocating an, a, a reformed testing protocol that would not involve these arbitrary match blends. So what's the probability that that improved or different testing protocol would actually come to be? Fortunately, uh, EPA is required to review and, if necessary, revise its vehicular emissions model every three years. It doesn't actually stick to that three-year schedule, but it, it is currently in the process of reviewing the current model, and EPA has said that it may revise the vehicular emissions model as early as 2018. And there is a MOVES review work group that is currently providing recommendations to EPA about the current model. And one of uh, Urban Air Initiative's technical experts, Steve Andreen, is a member of that committee. And uh, he is providing to the committee uh, the information that we think will help them come up with a better model next time. We have also submitted to EPA a request for correction of information that details in perhaps excruciating detail uh, the defects of both the MOVES model and the underlying fuel effect study and explains where EPA went wrong and what, what it needs to do to fix the model next time. So uh, we're hopeful that EPA will take these uh, take our input seriously and uh, not replicate the same errors of the current model next time it, it has to produce a new model. This is important to the states because the states are required to use EPA's model when they develop state implementation plans for compliance with the national ambient air quality standards. So we represented not only Urban Air Initiative, but also the states of Kansas and Nebraska in 
challenging this model in court and in and by an information quality act petition so we're standing by to see uh, how epa responds there's a lot of standing by you've given them plenty to think about I want to ask you some additional questions about, you know, how EPA models um, ethanol's uh, impact on vehicle emissions and how it calculates um, life cycle em- emissions. Um, UAI has said that um, EPA has failed to fairly assess ethanol's true effect on gasoline emissions, and it has failed to address and recognize the gap among gasoline, air, toxics, and PM. So my question is, I mean, PM, we know ozone is is one issue, but if you look at particulate matter from a national, but really an international um, perspective, I mean, PM10 and PM2.5 especially are huge, huge, huge problems and um, and getting worse. And so um, there are countries and a number of the states here that are looking for uh, for transport solutions, I mean, to deal with that because most of this PM, a lot of this PM comes from transport. So my question to you is, why is this happening? And, and again, you know, what's really going on um, in your your um, point of view. Can you talk a little bit more about what the issues are here and uh, what UAI wants to see happen? And so we think that the process would be better served by having uh, involvement from all stakeholders and a, a public process that interested parties could comment on and that would go through the ordinary rulemaking process. That's something that did not happen with this model. So I agree that uh, PM is a, a serious problem, particulate matter pollution. We think the evidence is clear that it's only going to get worse with emergence of more direct injection uh, engines, and, and the size of the particles is getting smaller while the mass is increasing. All of that uh, can be reversed by increasing the ethanol concentration of the fuel, but currently the EPA's model says the opposite. So we think it's important that this be corrected so that states and other countries can develop fuel and vehicle policies that actually have a a positive impact on emissions. And EPA has said that it will respond to our request for correction of information by late this month. So we're interested to hear what their response may be and uh, hopeful that all of this can result in a better model the next time that EPA uh, produces one. On the issue of life cycle analysis, um, EPA is woefully behind in keeping up with the science. EPA continues to rely on a 2010 analysis of ethanol's life cycle carbon intensity. This is a measure of all of the carbon emissions of the fuel, starting with agriculture, growing corn, to biorefining, to actually combusting the fuel in the vehicle. Back in 2010, when EPA did its first RFS rule, EPA estimated that corn ethanol was 21% less carbon intensive than petroleum, than ordinary gasoline. That was the best estimate EPA could come up with then, but it's proven to be entirely false because it was based on assumptions that have proven to be inaccurate. So back in 2010, there were gross overestimations of the land use change that would result from increasing corn ethanol production. We know empirically that those estimates have not uh, come to pass. 
corn ethanol has increased in volume primarily by increasing in the intensity of agriculture, that is through double cropping and increasing yield. And the EPA's 2010 analysis also failed to account for the uh, soil carbon sequestration of corn ethanol. We know now that corn, the corn plant, takes carbon out of the atmosphere and buries it much deeper in the soil than had previously been measured. So while EPA relies on an old model, Department of Agriculture and the Department of Energy have both uh, invested in updated modeling of carbon intensity. USDA just came out with a uh, an estimate of corn ethanol as currently being 43% less carbon intensive than gasoline, with estimates that that number will continue to increase. So we think that EPA should either improve its own analysis based on the best available science, or simply adopt one of these other models, like the GREET model that the Department of Energy is continually updating. Do you think that's possible? Do you think that that's um, that's something that can very well happen, that they would just adopt the GREET model and, and just be done with it? I think so. I think uh, it would be a practical use of resources since Department of Energy scientists have are continually updating this GREET model. And I think that EPA has an opportunity to do that. It is now behind in s- submitting its triennial biofuels report to Congress. This is a report that it's required by law to submit to Congress every three years about the air quality and water quality effects of the RFS. And uh, when EPA submitted its first and only biofuels report to Congress, it relied on this 2010 analysis. There's no reason that when EPA submits its new report, which it is committed to submit, that it couldn't simply adopt the Department of Energy's street model. So I, I think there's definitely a possibility of remedying that shortfall. So the last question I have for you is, and we talked about this maybe a little bit earlier when you talked about the the meeting with uh, Administrator Pruitt this week. With all of these issues that that we've been uh, talking about today, how does the change in administration affect how these issues may play out in in your view? And do you see these issues being addressed, you know, separately one by one? Do you see the potential for these to be wrapped up in a maybe a larger rulemaking on the RFS, or is it a case of who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Well, I think we're certainly in a wait and see posture. I think certainly possible that uh, many of these issues could be resolved together as part of a, a larger plan. One of Administrator Pruitt's first actions um, as administrator was a joint action with the Department of Transportation to uh, restart the midterm evaluation of the greenhouse gas and corporate average fuel economy rule. This is something that the past administration had quickly and prematurely wrapped up in the last days of the administration. The fact that this has been restarted, I think, demonstrates a commitment to the rule of law and to orderly process. EPA and DOT will now be working on this together as they had committed to do back in 2012 when this rule was started. 
I think this is important because it creates this midterm evaluation, creates a potential for a large negotiation that would involve many of these issues. So the auto industry has said that it wants higher octane fuel, and Ford, in its comments in a 2014 rule, pointed out that uh, getting a higher octane, higher ethanol fuel would be time-sensitive and should be done as uh, in conjunction with the midterm evaluation. I think it's entirely possible that EPA could look for ways to come up with a more intelligent regulatory solution for many of these problems that interact with one another. All right, we'll end it there. That's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Adam so much for being on the show today. It was a pleasure to have you. And as things develop, I hope to have you back again. Thank you, Tammy. It's a pleasure. So please do us a favor today before you go. Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and also benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on future fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks for listening.